All right. Well, good morning. I'm Sam, and uh, we're going to be continuing our our series through the book of James. Um, it's pretty much what we do. We just kind of pick books and go uh, straight through them. Um, and this one will take us, uh, gosh, I don't know what we're on, week 11 or 12. Um, there is a study guide. might be a few copies left of it if you haven't received it yet. And uh, it has some helpful stuff about some commentary and, and questions, things I don't always address. Um, but we're in James chapter 3, and we're going to get right in it today. Um, James 3.13 and 4-3. through 3. Last week we talked about the tongue, and I don't know if you spent your week like I did, kind of measuring every word you said, or at least um, I was more thoughtful about it, not necessarily successful, but uh, a little more thoughtful and then convicted when I uh, threw out little words that became little packages that were either bombs or snowballs, depending on who received them. Uh, and even snowballs, I guess, can hurt a little bit if uh, you throw them like I did back in the day, like, you know, ice balls, you know what we're talking about, right? So um, we're going to be uh, continuing uh, the study in 13, verse 13 of chapter 3, so we're going to get right into it. And if you don't have a Bible, again, there's a couple in the back that you can read uh, or uh, take with you. So uh, verse 13 of chapter 3, um, titled Above and Below, uh, is the title of the sermon. And it says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Chapter 4. What causes quarrels or what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I have an agenda today, very simply. It is first and foremost to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that basically declares all of us sinners. Some of us, by God's grace, have accepted that and believe that He died on the cross for our sins and He cleanses us, and because He rose from the dead... He has the power and the authority to give us new life. That's what I'm about, plain and simple. We can excuse now and it's over. My second agenda item is to hopefully persuade you, but really that persuasion won't come from me, but to proclaim to you the need for you to pray. We talk about prayer a lot. And James is really concerned, overly concerned, with people who only talk about stuff. Talkers. Everyone's met talkers, right? People just talk, talk, talk. And they're wonderful people to have at a party. And the worst kind of person to have if it's one-on-one, just nonstop talking and you're just listening. And it's not just talking per se. It's a little bit of a different kind of talking we'll get into. Last week in verses 1 through 12, James talked about the tongue. And he talked about this powerful thing, which I read is not just a muscle, but a collection of muscles that has the ability 
more than anything else in this world, more than a fist, more than a gun, more than anything to transform someone, the individual speaking or those who are hearing, has an amazing power to build or to destroy. It's the very thing that God used to bring creation to existence. He could have, you imagine the ways he could have done it, like, and God snapped his fingers and there was light. You know, it, whatever. But he spoke. And he imbued us with this power to speak creatively so that when we say something, something's created, for better or worse. Most of the time, I think, it's often a perverted thing of what it's supposed to be because we're broken. And so we say things that we're ashamed of. We say things that are imperfect. We, we say things that hurt. And I was trying to convince you last week that words hurt. We pretend like they don't, but they hurt. And they can be destructive. And so James was like, you need to bridle this thing. Not silence it, not muzzle it, not sew your mouth shut. You need to bridle it and direct it with the correct writer or sea captain who is Jesus directing it. And direct it to proclaim truth. And it's interesting that same Sunday last week, we sang Psalm 34. We like to sing a lot of psalms. I remember one time I preached on Psalm 46, and that week I told Brad, wouldn't it be cool if we sang sang Psalm 46? And he's like, yeah, that'd be cool. And he shows up on Sunday and he's written a song to it. I was like, oh, cool. Because we have his book of songs. And not that any Christian songs or other songs we sing, hymns and whatnot are aren't any good, but these are the words of God. And so we sang Psalm 34. It's that glorious song. That It's a, not all of Psalm 34, but the bulk of it is. And the chorus, if you remember, is, taste, O taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's amazing if you go through Scripture how much the tongue and the mouth are used to describe various things. And in this case, taste and see, taste, the, the tongue is the, the most prominent kind of muscle or organ or whatever that's in charge of that, along with the rest of your mouth. And so your mouth not only can bless God and curse people, or even curse God, I guess, it is the means by which we are asked or persuaded or called to enjoy God and to experience God. And so it's this powerful thing that can direct us one way or another. And James is warning us, be very careful, because it can have unbelievable destructive power, even with a little spark which is what most forest fires begin like. And then he continues into verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 13 here. And it appears to be kind of a disconnected little like section where it's like, okay, now he starts talking about wisdom. All right, we're on to a new topic. And that's kind of like reading the book of Proverbs. As you read through, you're like, what does this verse have to do with this verse? And it's like these all these lists of of wise sayings that seem kind of disconnected and it seems that case here where he starts talking about what wisdom is. And like I said last week, a fool and a wise person are often determined or distinguished by how they use their mouths. Proverbs 10 is is a great section of Scripture to read about this, where it basically says a wise person controls his mouth and a fool does not. It says in particular in Proverbs 10.19, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And I can see that in my kids, right? Kids give me so much information of not only how sinful I am in my relationship with God, but just, you know, evidences of life and great sermon material. 
And one of the things is that this, the kid, you know, whenever you ask them and they've done something wrong, it's amazing the elaborate stories that will come out. It's rarely, yes, Father, I did this wrong. You know, we're getting there. But typically it's like, well, here's what happened. This amazing thing occurred. Someone spoke, and you know, they have this big story, and they're like, typically when they have a lot of story, a lot of elaborate words of how that toy miraculously flew out of their hand into the forehead of my other son and blood spewed everywhere, that there was this beam of power that dragged it to him, and he didn't mean to. It's like all these things. Sin is there. Typically sin is there. And the same is with us. And James's audience is full of talkers. That's the whole purpose of his letter. That you guys are good at really doing nothing but talking. You talk all the time. And you are never quiet about what you believe or what you say. And the fool is what he's really calling them as he writes his letter. According to Proverbs 10, babbles on and on, is gossiping, is lying, is speaks perversely, boasts and brags. And ultimately, all that talk although they think it's wise, produces nothing but confusion and chaos and ruin and hurt. And he's writing to all these talkers who confess things about themselves, about their trials. They confess things and go, well, this is the way it is. He's always told them, be slow to speak, be be slow to judgment. And they've confessed things about what God is doing or not doing. They've confessed things about people and saying, well, you're worthy, you're not worthy because you're rich or you're poor or you're educated or uneducated. And he's tired of listening to them talk. And he wants them to actually act. And so now he challenges, in a lot of ways, what they're saying. Because not only is faith, and he's said this, faith has to have works. True faith will always bleed itself out in works. It's just, it's natural. The same is with wisdom. Just because someone's talking a lot, doesn't mean they're actually wise. But we all need wisdom. We all need it. And so we we search for it, and sometimes we're attracted to people who talk the most. But we need wisdom for all kinds of decisions. Everyone, that's what trials, that's what life is all about, making big decisions and little decisions. Where do I go to college? Who do I marry? What do I just say in this moment where I really am not sure what to say? Do I take this job? Do I do X, Y, Z? it's a, any number of trials. We, that's the nature of a trial. We don't know what to do. In the very beginning, he said, appeal to God for wisdom. And so we want wisdom. But I wonder, as much or as many questions as we have, there actually are hundreds of people willing to give us answers. There are so many different options, if you will, in this world we live in that come from all kinds of different people. And... Wisdom is something the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3 that we're supposed to find. We're supposed to look for. We're supposed to listen for. I love this passage. It's Proverbs 3. And again, the whole book of Proverbs is about wisdom. But this is what it says is describing how we find wisdom and how we should pursue it. Chapter 3, and I'll just read a few verses starting in verse 13. It says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. And the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver. And her profit better than gold. I like that he describes wisdom or personifies wisdom as a woman. 
Because I know what it means, at least as a guy. Women are like, I don't understand. But as a guy, I understand what it means to pursue, right? My wife, I pursued her. It was like a hunter after its prey, right? I will get you. You know, I, I put all kinds of bait out. It's like, you know, the wild lion going through the Sahara. Oh, I see the lion. And, and I, you know, I wanted it, and I pursued it, and I had to do various things to, to find her and and honestly, if I knew who my wife was today, I would have started when I was like 12 years old searching for her because it's just like she's the one that I wanted. And so I like that wisdom is personified as this, this person that you pursue and that you want and you should find and search for. And that she, wisdom, is more precious and better than silver and gold, which, let's be honest, if most of our problems we actually believe are solved by more money. Any number of problems we go, if I just had this, fill in the number, dollar sign, things would be better. But he says, no, 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 wisdom. Wisdom's where it's at. And he continues, she is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Oh, come on. I desire lots of things. You tell me wisdom? I mean, what's that? Being smart? Wisdom is going to compare to that 19... 58 convertible B-dub bug with red exterior, a tan or black interior. I mean, I, I with semaphores, and I could go on and on. I, this is what I, come on, I desire that. That's what I want. I desire to have, you know, a lot of different things. He says, no, no, nothing can compare to her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left hand are riches and honor. I love this. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, pleasantness and her paths are peace. Wisdom. It's so often we think the ways of God are anything but pleasant. It's going to be complete sacrifice and pain and suffering. I think there is some of that, but the wisdom brings pleasantness and brings peace. She is a tree of life to those who hold of her, lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. So how do you find wisdom? If that's what it is, I want it. If it's going to bring me peace, and plus, if it's better than gold, if it is the thing to be desired, nothing can... I want it. I want it. And so he begins by asking this question in verse 13. He says, who is wise among you? Because someone's got wisdom, right? Where is it? What do you got? I want it. He says, who is wise among you? And we always are looking to someone who is wiser than us, I think. And that's not a bad thing. It's just natural for us. But the scary thing, if we consider, is... We often assume that the people to talk first or to talk most or to talk the loudest are, in fact, the wise ones. I don't necessarily think that is probably accurate, but the loudest and and sometimes the best looking or the most charismatic or the most familiar, the most convenient, or maybe just the most creative voice, like different than the rest, often I think wins because we are a people that are easily swayed by clever communicators. And I don't know if we ask enough questions when we're looking for answers to our questions. I know that the fall of man, if you look back, it all begins in Genesis 3, right? The fall of man resulted from a temptation to accept wisdom from someone who talked a lot. And that's what it was. I think it's ironic that the serpent has a is known for its long tongue, right? You think of snakes, like, you know, the whole snake thing. But Satan himself is a talker. Satan himself is not a god. 
He is a fallen angel created by God to serve him and ends up rebelling against him. But an angel is a messenger. His job is to talk. And so instead of being a messenger for God, he became a messenger for Satan. For evil, I should say. And he became described in the Bible as the accuser. That's a talker. As the father of lies. Can't lie without talking. I guess you could do sign language, but you, you lie by using your mouth. That's the nature of Satan. That's the nature of evil. And our perfect parents, right? Because we always think, well, I know we don't say it, but we're like, how could you have eaten that one fruit? Come on. And all this other stuff. But think about this. Our perfect parents, in a perfect environment, with everything they could ever want, fell for it. And we expect, in this broken world, with everything broken, broken parents, broken kids, broken world, that, oh, well, I know wisdom when I see it. Really? I wonder how easily we fall for lies that's packaged in wisdom. And we kind of have this, like, if you think about, like, who's wise, like, who's considered wise, sometimes we think, well, people who are smart. All right? People have lots of knowledge, lots of abbreviations after their name. They're wise. So a guy can come out in the news who's a scientist or a doctor or whatever, and he will say something, and we will accept it as face value no matter what it is. Well, you know, this is the way people are born, or this is this way. And it's not to say that we should deny, well, that's not in the Bible, so I don't believe that. But it is to say, do we accept it that quickly? Because someone has knowledge? People you know, like, oh, that guy's really smart. So they tell you something that has nothing to do with how smart they are, but they can tell you, you know, like a celebrity, right? An actor. Fantastic, very knowledgeable in the ways of acting, very good. And they stand up and they say something about politics. Like, why should I listen to you? Because you can blow up stuff in a movie screen, looks pretty cool, and now you tell me how to vote. Should we? Maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. Do we ask those questions? Sometimes it's based off of age. Like if the person's old, they must be wise. I know plenty of people older than me who are, I would not consider wise. I would never ask them to do anything. And I know people who are younger than me that I would probably say, you are wise, and I would ask about particular things. So it's not always age. Because we get older doesn't mean we mature, right? I saw that in high school. The kids graduating, I'm going to give you a little warning, okay? Those who got their diplomas weren't necessarily the most wise. There were some who were, but there's some who weren't going to get wise for another 10 years, perhaps. Some would argue that wisdom comes from experiences. Like, you have to have a lot of failures in order to be wise, which you stand back and you go, that's kind of dumb, really, if you think about it. But we measure people by... Well, I had these failures, and this is what happened, and that's not bad. Or measured by their good decisions, which sometimes, it's just luck, sometimes. There's no such thing as luck. Okay, I know. Let's go on. And some, but we have this like, picture of these wise people sitting up on mountains, or owls, right? You know, no, I don't know why owls are wise. But you have up on mountains, or like in movies, they're always that wise sage Sometimes they're like a frog with really high midichlorian counts. But, you know, they talk backwards, and that's like, well, you're wise, although I don't understand what you're saying. You must be wise. And they're all this, we're all looking for wisdom from people, and there's nothing wrong with it because there are people that are imbued with it. But I think James here says that wise or wisdom is more than words. He says, stop telling me you're wise. I'm wise because I'm old. Listen to me. I'm wise because I've had experiences, young one. Listen to me. I'm wise because I have these PhDs. 
Let's look at your life, James says. Let's look at the conduct of your life. I mean your decisions? No, he goes beyond just the decisions. He says, in fact, by his conduct, let him show his works of wisdom in the meekness of wisdom. See, earlier in this letter, he uses this word meekness again. In verse chapter 1 of verse 21, he says, Receive with meekness the implanted word that's able to save your souls. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Why? Because it is the most unwise story there is. The story of the cross is complete foolishness. And so to receive it by the grace of God is to receive wisdom of God, definitely not wisdom of men. Meekness is not, this is sense of it's like a, a weakness. But it is, in fact, humility. It's humility. People who are actually wise are characterized by humility. And I, I love my bride, but it's funny, she, she likes to describe people as humble. And I challenged her this the other day. It didn't really go well, but I did it anyway. But she's like, oh, that guy is, or that girl is really humble. I said, you know, are you sure? She's like, yeah. They're just like, I said, what does, tell me why you think they're humble. How she describe these behaviors? And I think a lot of times we believe like the people that are very you know, quiet, just sit back. You know, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that a fool can look wise if he says nothing. So humility seems to me more than just silence and more than just slow to speak, although I think that is important. Meekness is a humility that comes from something. And Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of God is where wisdom starts. The fear of God. Now, commentators have gone, they've tried so hard to make sure, well, don't be scared of God. We're not talking about being scared and, and fearful and trembling. God, don't wipe me out. But there's a beauty in that. I don't know if we've ever actually made God big enough, especially today in our culture. Maybe we should be a little fearful of God. But the cross brings this idea of fearing of God to a place where I can, I can kind of grasp it. And let me see if you can. Where God is, for lack of a better word, ticked. He's ticked. Well, we just ate a fruit. That's not, that's not the point. If he said, don't pick your nose, and that was the one rule he gave you, he's going to hate you for picking your nose. Why? Because you disobeyed. It was rebellion. had very little to do with the fruit. But he, he's ticked. He is angry, and he said that sin has a consequence, and it's death. That should bring a sense of fear. I mean, just flat out fear. There's a God who is angry. But the cross is this beautiful thing where he's like, I am angry, and all the anger that I have with all of mankind for their rebellion, I'm going to exercise. He could have just said, I'm done. Then he wouldn't have been just. He wouldn't have been a lot of things. But he says, no, I'm going to pour it out on myself, on my son. And he does. So there's this fear where God is unwilling to break the rules. He established the rules. And it's like, man, he's serious. You know, and you all had like teachers where you're kind of hoping like, you know, I know this is late. You're hoping they'll break the rules for you a little bit. Like, I know you said not to do this, but... God's like, no, I'm not breaking the rules. 
But at the same time, although he's unwilling to, to break the rules and therefore, I think, make his justice imperfect, he's unwilling to let us go and to not love us. And so cross brings us all together. This place of humility where nothing we have comes from us. We have nothing to offer God and God offers everything for us. And it helps me to see the fear of God is this reverent awe that takes me to a place of humility. Yeah, Christ was humiliated on the cross in a very practical sense. He was even more humiliated. I think the humiliation started even before then where he comes down as a man. Not a king, a carpenter who's hated by his brothers, one who is writing this letter, mocked and beaten and all these things. He was humiliated, but in the cross, I actually see I am completely humiliated. Where I don't ever, the cross shows me how serious my sin is and how helpless I am to save myself. That is a place of wisdom. The cross is a place where wisdom begins. I love, uh, there's a song that probably very many or very few of you have ever heard. There's a songwriter named Michael Card, Christian songwriter. He writes beautiful music that will never be popular outside of Christian circles probably. But his music is very scripture rich. And he wrote one song that I want someone to sing. I've actually almost gotten that close to singing it myself because it's one of my favorite songs. And you listen to it and you're like, that just sounds freaky. And hearing Sam sing that would be even freakier. But it's called God's Own Fool. It starts off by saying, uh, seems I've imagined all my life, um, I seem to imagine him all my life as the wisest of all mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. And it begins to describe what true wisdom came in the form of. And the chorus goes like this. It says, we in our foolishness thought we were wise. And he played the fool because he wasn't a fool. He played the fool and he opened our eyes. We in our weakness believed we were strong. We in our wisdom believed we were wise. Our wisdom. But we in our weakness believed we were strong. He became helpless to show we were wrong. And it's a beautiful picture of the wisdom of God. And the question is, what governs you in your daily decisions and decision making? Is it the wisdom of God that basically humbles you to a place where I am this God's workmanship, yes, but a creation, this little thing. Comparing you to an ant isn't even equal to the analogy. And yet God loved me. Man, how humiliating that is. Is that what governs you? Is that the wisdom? And he goes on to say, in the meekness I should say, Verse 14, he says, but, and he contrasts, and here's the but. Does meekness and that humility govern you, or is it this? And he says, but, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth, the reality, that you are nothing. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. But it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So there's two things in this world. Demon wisdom and God wisdom. That's it. There are no other options. It looks different sometimes. Sometimes it's worldly wisdom. Sometimes it's fleshly wisdom. And sometimes it's flat out Satan wisdom. But there are only two options. And we have to ask ourselves, what governs you? Because we're all looking for wisdom. 
We all need to find wisdom, whether we admit that we're on a search or not. We all have decisions we're trying to make. The question is, where do we go to get through the hard things of life where things don't make sense, where we don't know what to do, may not be a terrible trial, may just be a really difficult decision. Should I buy this house? Should I do X, Y, Z with my money? Should I engage in this relationship with this person? And we look for wisdom. And the amazingly stupid thing to me is how often we appeal to people who are not governed by the humility of Christ. That are not governed by the Lordship of Jesus. And we go and we ask them wisdom, expecting to get answers that are going to lead us to God's wisdom. Foolish. It's like the married couple where the wife is very upset about something. She goes to her non-believing friends and says, what should I do? How quick are they to go, well, the Bible says, Jesus says, or just to pout off something that they think is a good idea? Or men do the same thing. Yeah, I can't believe she did that, you know, and blah, blah, blah. What should I do? Um, You should repent. You should go love your wife and sacrifice for her because you caused this. Uh, You're supposed to, like, encourage me. And we can grunt and drink beer and stuff. What's going on? Okay? I mean, I've told guys time and time again who I counsel in marriage counseling, I say, look, tell me about your friends. Well, I got this guy, this guy. How many of them worship Jesus? Well, they go to church. No, no, no. How many of them worship Jesus? How many do you know that Jesus is the Lord of their life, that their decisions are governed by the Lordship? Well, probably none of them. Don't ask them any questions about your marriage. When you've got a problem, call me. So they started to, finally, after he talked to his buddies. Well, my buddies told me this. I said, they're fools. They're fools. You screwed up. But wait, they told you screwed up. Go ask your wife for forgiveness and repent. Okay. Glory. That's God's wisdom. Sam's wisdom. I got my own. There. I have that same, like, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness here. I didn't do anything wrong, right? I'd struggle with the same thing. But what? Go back to Scripture. Because Scripture is offensive to our desires. By the grace of God, our desires change. But many times, when we're struggling with a trial, we know exactly what we want or supposed to do, but it's uncomfortable to do the right thing. Maturity and wisdom is doing that harder right over the easier wrong. And the harder right is typically God's way. Typically God's way. But I think he, he names two things. You can either be governed by God's wisdom or demonic wisdom, which reveals itself in two ways. So maybe you know people like this, because I'm sure none of you are like this. Let's see. Bitter jealousy. What's that? It's envy. What's envy? Think about decision making. Here's how you make your decisions if you're generally a bitter or envious or jealous person. You are driven by wanting what others have and hating especially those people, because they have it and you don't. It's a life constantly in despair where you're dissatisfied with what you've been given, whether that be health, wealth, whatever. And everything that you have, you probably consider you got it for yourself, but if not, God didn't give it to you and you're angry. You spend your time thinking about, I wish I was this, I wish I was not this. Look what they have. And instead of celebrating what God has blessed them with, whether it be a creative ability or wealth or whatever it is, you hate them for it. Because they have what you have. Oh, I'm sorry, have what you want. 
And you want their situation and you want out of your situation. And it's a life, honestly, that's characterized by disillusion, disappointment, and despair. And it leads to bitterness. It leads to bitterness. That's what earthly demonic wisdom will bring. The other selfish ambition is when your decision-making is rooted in just getting ahead and getting your own way regardless of who's in it. So it's not that you look at people and hate them. You look at people and go, you're in my way. And you pile right over them. It's about assuming somewhat of a position of authority. It's a word used by Aristotle, the philosopher Aristotle, that described people um, kind of selfishly pursuing political office. And instead of actually wanting to change the community and loving the community, they wanted the position for power and for influence. It's selfish ambition. Nothing wrong with ambition, but ambition for the glory of self or the glory of God. And so they are at the core, someone is selfishly ambitious, self-seeking. They're about, about their party and their faction and their agenda. And when they talk with you in relationship even, they are more concerned with getting you to believe what they do and do how they do and think how they do and all those things than they are actually loving you. And he says these are polar opposites. Polar difference from meekness and demonic wisdom. The meekness of wisdom and wisdom that is selfish, wisdom that is envious. And he says, if this is where your heart is, don't boast, don't brag, don't be teaching people and talking all the time. In fact, you probably should close your mouth because you're not wise. You are not wise. You're going against the truth that is humbling. If you spend all your time trying to look better than others or get something from others, you're denying the gospel that says you're supposed to think of others as more important than yourself. That's wisdom. The other is not. And then he says, let me tell you what wisdom is. Here's what wisdom flushes itself out with. Wisdom from above. I like he says from above. doesn't come from here. Because what's here? The world, the flesh, and Satan. That's what's here. Wisdom comes from a place outside of this world. It doesn't mean that no one ever, say, you know, anyone saying anything in this realm isn't wise. But it's the only people who say anything that are wise, according to God, are people that are governed by God, and they are in tune or communicating with God as they've submitted to Him. But it says, wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He tells us that wisdom truly originates with God, so no one can be wise. Now, how old they are, how many experiences they've had, they cannot be truly wise in the eyes of God if they haven't received their wisdom from God. It doesn't come from below or men, but it comes from God. Now, there are many people, I believe, that confess the name of Jesus, and James is writing to those people but don't possess the wisdom of Jesus. They're just talkers. So here's how he describes it, how you can test it. First of all, it's pure. And you can test anyone who claims the name of Jesus. Okay? Here's what it looks like. First, it's pure. What's pure wisdom? Well, the opposite, I guess, would it be impure, so some sense of dirtiness to it. Now, impure in me is that someone who is godly wise is interested in the truth that's not mixed with sin. What you see is a lot of churches and individuals kind of adding a bunch of stuff to make others comfortable. 
to make things more sensitive to non-believers. The reality is the truth of God's offensive. It's offensive to those who do not believe, and it's beautiful aroma to those who do. That's it. So we don't mix it with anything. We preach it pure. We declare it pure. doesn't mean we don't declare it with gentleness, but we don't change it in hopes of making it more accepting. Culture doesn't dictate what truth is. The truth of God dictates what's going on in culture. Second, though, it says it's peaceable. Peaceable. There are lots of people that take the truth of God and are like, I'll show you the truth of God. Okay? It's not supposed to be hostile. And I have been incredibly aggressive in my preaching of truth in my younger days. Well, they just didn't uh, receive the truth because they didn't hear it loud enough. And so I scream it at them. Okay? It's peaceable. It is more concerned with reconciliation. That's the motivation. That this person or these people, that this world is broken and they need a Savior. Yes, they need a Lord. They need some, a king and there is a king. But they need a Savior. It's peaceable, not hostile. It's also gentle, not just loud. It's gentle, not loud. I think when people are loud, the louder they get, it's kind of like talking to someone who doesn't speak the language. You know, you have people always talk louder, like they're going to receive it better. You know, you've heard that before. Like, you go to, uh, um, I always get my hair cut. For whatever reason, it's always someone that English is definitely not their first language, which is both good and bad, um, but it's bad in that they ask you questions, and you're like, what? You know, and so I want to answer, but I end up finding myself getting louder, trying to, like, give them the answers that I think they're not understanding, and it's just dumb. Loud doesn't make it any more clear. In fact, loud, I think, is when people are completely insensitive to others. I'm going to get louder because I want you to hear me, and then you can't be heard. Because I don't really care what you think, although I'm not saying it. I just want to be loud or just talk constantly. It's gentle. And the next one is open to reason versus unteachable. I mean, I was very unteachable and have been and still am stubborn and not open to reason. Why? Because I'm convinced my opinion's right on everything. Okay? It's true. Not that it's right, but that I'm convinced of it. Okay? But someone who has the wisdom of God is open to listening. How do you know that? They shut up every now and then. And they go, what do you think? What do you think? Full of mercy. I think someone who's full of mercy and the wisdom of God that loved before they loved. They have the wisdom to know that that person is not going to be loving towards them maybe for a long time. But it doesn't stop them from being loving. What is that? The gospel. Good thing Jesus didn't wait for us to be loving. When you start loving me, then I'll come down and die for you. Wasn't going to happen. And yet we wait for people to start loving us before we're like, well, now that you're loving, you're worthy of love. I'll tell you right now, I wouldn't be loving my kids. Okay? Because a large majority of the time, they're not loving towards me. They're trying to manipulate me and use me and get my stuff, right? So... I've got to show them love because they're still learning. They're growing before they love me. Impartial. Wisdom is impartial. Someone's unbiased. Well, I love you because you're rich, poor, uneducated, educated, artistic, non-artistic, athletic, non-athletic. 
unbiased. Unbiased in its sharing of God's truth as well. And wisdom is sincere. You know when someone actually believes what they're telling you. You know it. You, it's so obvious when people actually believe it. And sometimes it takes the hard trials of life to reveal that. But they know when you're sincere versus hypocritical. Versus hypocritical. And James says that there's a harvest of righteousness for those who sow peace. He, he's, he's kind of really hitting on peace. He doesn't want everyone to be a pacifist. But in this particular context, what's going on is these guys called the zealots. And they're like revolutionaries. And they actually, around this time, which is 4550 A.D., they're just kind of getting started. People are getting oppressed by Rome and some of the Roman rich people, not just the guards and soldiers and things like that. And so they're telling them, you need to fight back. You need to throw this off. This is wrong. And they end up revolting. About 65 to 70 A.D., there's a war. That's what happened with the destruction of the temple, and Rome came in and just destroyed the temple for the final time. And he's trying to tell them, look, go for peace. Righteousness is sown by humbly accepting and meekly continuing, not just fighting. And he's speaking directly to the teacher, saying, you guys are wrong. They shouldn't be throwing off. They shouldn't fight every time that something difficult happens. You don't play the victim card every time something's going bad. But he says, you go to the cross. You go to the cross. And he challenges their wisdom, and in hindsight... Fifteen years later, he was right. Their violence created more violence. And I think the thing about it is that as we talk with people and engage people with wisdom, think about what your goal is. Is it peace or is it just to get your opinion out? Is it creating chaos? Now, if it's creating chaos because you're speaking the truth, you have no control over that. You do have control of how you say that truth. And sometimes they don't even hear what you're saying because of the violence of what you're saying it with. Now, the last part is what I really was moved by this week. I know there's chapter sections and verses and whatnot, but the reality some men a few hundred years ago put those in. God didn't, so we're going to continue where I think it should end. And that's in the first three verses. And he says, as he's talking about sowing peace, he's like, here's why you're not peaceful, peeps. Here's why things are chaotic for you. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why are you not meek? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? That you desire and you do not have, so you murder? You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel? You do not have because you don't ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. James, he ends this this section in Scripture by asking a question, I think, to prove a point. And that is that our solution to the problem of being wise, of being meek and conducting our life in the meekness of wisdom has little to do with us just going, okay, I'm going to be wise now. And choosing that. It's not really an option for us. In reality, we can't just choose the way of wisdom, though I know we can have those desires that come from God. But we are unable, I think, and I believe the Bible teaches, as James says here, to choose the right path and follow it every time, not because of something outside of ourselves, but because of something inside which is, according to Galatians 5, a war going on between the flesh and the spirit. Our passions are in conflict. There is a civil war going on that we, in many ways, cannot fight ourselves. We cannot win. 
And so what happens as this war is raging on, it bleeds out and typically or oftentimes creates disunity in the communities around us, whether that just be our marriage, our family, or whatever, because we give in to those passions. And James says that this happens because we do not pray. Flat out. Why are there fights? Why do you have these desires? Why aren't you living out the wisdom of God and His way? Because we don't pray. And he even says, even if you do pray, you pray selfishly. You pray what you want. God is to you, as he writes to them, a vending machine that you put in money in when it's convenient to you, and you only press the numbers of the stuff that you want, not that you actually should get. You know what that's like, right? You put the money in every now and then when you might be hungry. When the trial comes, okay, I guess I go to the vending machine today, and you go and you're like, well, this is how I want it to end, God. E3. And next thing you know, like, C4 comes out, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That doesn't work. I want what I want, God. There's a reason why when Jesus teaches to pray, you should read that. We kind of make the mistake of, like, I'm going to recite. Nothing wrong with reciting that prayer. I recite that with my kids. Our Father who art in heaven. What is that a big deal? Because he's a creator and you're creation. Good to remember. Our Father who are out in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Not only you are in heaven, you are completely different than me. Because I'll be in heaven one day, but I will not be as holy ever in terms of the holiness that God is infinitely. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come, not mine. Right? How many times do you pray, Lord, I need this built in my kingdom? Your kingdom be built, not my own. Your will be done. That's before any other prayer. Anything else, any requests for anything, your will be done. Why? Because he is more interested in his will and his glory than he is in your and my comfort. Because we don't really know what brings us pleasure and peace like God's wisdom, we don't think that it's there. There's a reason why Jesus prayed on the night that he was arrested, about to die. He prays, Lord, if there is any way, Father, that this thing can be done differently, because he knows exactly what's going to happen. And then he adds, but your will be done. But your will be done. We don't pray that. We pray. Many of us pray like, Lord, this is what I want. I want this, and if I don't get that, I am not going to be at peace, and I am not going to be happy. And so when we don't get that, we are not at peace, and we're not happy because we didn't pray God's will be done. I think it's very interesting, and I'm going to take you through real quick verses here, how Paul, the apostle, prayed for his people. Pray for lots of different things. I know we all pray. I shouldn't say that. I don't think many of us pray. I really don't. You might pray, like at dinner, and pray when your wife begs you to, right? Pray every now and then when things go bad, but you don't consistently pray. Where this is where I pray. This is where I daily, every day, well, I don't pray every day. Notice how Paul prays for his people. 
I'll just, you just have to write the references down because I went through all of his letters and almost every single letter has this moment in here. Ephesians 1, 15 and following, but I'll just read the first couple. As he's praying for what he wants in his people. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. When do you? I don't cease. Remembering you in my prayers that... Here's what he prays. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. That He'll give them a spirit of wisdom. How often do we pray for a spirit of wisdom? For, not, for what? What wisdom for what? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That you may know what is the hope that He has called you to. But I just want this to change. I don't like the situation I'm in. Pray that you get wisdom to see the hope that He has called you to. Which is what? Life, eternity with Jesus. Having the eyes of your heart. Oh, sorry. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power? He can do anything toward those who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in the Gospel. Christ. When He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name is named, not only this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. That they'll receive wisdom. That they'll receive wisdom. Never stop praying for wisdom. Philippians 1.8 says the same thing. A little bit different wording. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with lots of works and stuff, with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be sure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. Colossians 1.9 and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, constantly praying for these churches and these people, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let me just be very frank. I know I'm not frank that often. Let me be very frank. How often do you pray? Really? You don't need to like tell me. How often do you really pray? Because I pretend, and I have pretended for many years to be a prayer warrior, and I've said it before, I'm more like a prayer shadow boxer. And I think we've got a lot of shadow boxers in here. Because I don't think we pray. And if you're not praying, you are not receiving God's wisdom to get through whatever trial or make decision, or make the decision you have to make. You are basing all of your hope on stuff in this world, on other people, many of whom are not under the Lordship of Jesus. Do you pray? I made a commitment this week because I had to preach on it. To pray with my wife every day. And I ended up getting five out of seven. Where I said, I'm carving out this time to pray with you. Not because I like it. I loathe it. I wish I could say that it's like the most glorious experience. I know it is for her. Relationally, she loves it. For me, it's 
it's a struggle. Sometimes I'll sit there and go, you know, what am I going to pray? And it comes and it flows, but I sit there intentionally in silence, submitted to God's wisdom, to know that it's coming from above, not from here, and I'm going to rely on it. And it's been a beautiful experience for us. I don't say that to save your marriage. I don't say that so that you guys will grow closer together, but I know that will be a benefit. I say that so that you will stop depending upon the wisdom that is so available, all kinds of talkers, and depend upon God. Depend upon God. You as an individual, do you pray? Do you have a time where you pray? Well, no, I can't. Then set your stinking alarm and pray. Every day, I'm praying here. What am I going to pray? Start praying the Psalms. I do that sometimes. I don't know what to pray. I guess I'll pray God's words back to Him. Because I don't know what to pray. Start with Psalm 34. Beautiful. Starts off with, have joy continually in your heart. I don't feel joyful right now. Well, there's something to pray about. Pray. Do we pray? About six months ago, I confessed on, a, on, I think it was one of her blogs, that I wasn't a man of prayer. I just didn't feel like I was a man of prayer. And I'm a pastor, right? I'm supposed to be a prayer warrior. Wrong. Wish I was. I pray a lot. I pray for you. I pray for individuals. But to say that I'm just rich in prayer, I wouldn't describe my life as that. I probably pray more than others and less than others. So I confess that I, I'm preaching to people to pray and I'm not praying. So I wrote this thing, and you should all grab it. And you can see all the things that I was like, trying to answer the questions, well, what am I going to pray about? I can pray about my kids. I can pray about my wife. I can pray about my you know, bad rash or whatever it is. I can pray about these things. But what does God want me to pray about? So I listed them out so you don't have an excuse. What do I pray about? Here you go. And what you'll see in each one of these is pretty much my confession. Here's where Sam wasn't praying. Wow, that's interesting. Prayer of adoration. How much time do you just pray? In adoring God and His beauty and His glory and His power and His forgiveness and His patience with you. Praising Him. That's prayer. Prayer of submission. I will submit to your will, God, regardless. Do you pray that? Because if you don't, where are you saying that or believing that? Well, I just, I believe that. Well, Jesus told you to pray it. Because the mouth has power. Prayer of provision. Lord, I need to find work. Are you praying about that? I prayed about that once. Every day. Constantly. Prayer for confession. When is the last time you confessed your sins? I don't know what I have to confess. There's something. Get on your knees and have them show you what it is. You confess. Prayer of deliverance, prayer of protection, prayer of dependence, prayer for yourself, prayer for your family, prayer for your friends. Who's the last person you prayed that God would reveal His Word to, that they would be transformed? You pray for your neighbors, pray for your daughter, pray for your son, pray for your bride, pray for your husband. Prayer for your church. Do you pray for your church? Pray for us. I say us, us. Your church isn't your leadership. We're part of the same body. But you pray for your community. Here's what I challenge. I throw, I'm throwing down the challenge. I'm not big on gimmicks, but I'm throwing down the challenge. 21 days to build a habit. I challenge you, if you are not now, to pray no matter what 
for 21 days. What do I pray? Here you go. Just go through that. 21 days. Maybe nothing will happen. But I'm guessing that blessing will happen. What will be the blessing? I will get what I want? No. You will get what God has for you. And that just might be the most beautiful thing, which is pleasure and peace. Translated, contentment. Contentment. Where else are you going to get it? You'll search for all kinds of saviors to save you. Wisdom comes from one place, and it's up there. You've got to get on the phone. And how often do you pray? 1 Thessalonians 5 says it this way. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. And we think like, we have to walk around like, mm-hmm. hey Lord, how you doing? Good. You know, you're praying constantly. You and I both know that we're not probably fulfilling that very well. Whatever that looks like. I don't think it's nonstop, 24 hours a day, praying. But if I asked you, do you pray without ceasing? You'd probably respond with, well, I pray starting sometimes. I mean, I, I, I pray every now and then. I don't know if I describe myself as praying without ceasing. 21 days, 21 days of prayer. Last thing he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 25, is brothers pray for us. I want you to pray. I, I ask that we'll be a praying church. Because if not, we're a church made on man's wisdom. And we can do all kinds of gimmicks and sell all kinds of things and bring people in. But you win people to what you win them with. And we're winning people with the gospel of Jesus because we're humbly accepting that we have nothing else to offer. And we pray that the power is in prayer. Not in my ability to persuade. Not in Randy's ability to play. Not in a building's ability to protect us from the weather. But in prayer. I'll close with uh, sharing a little um, news from our, from our body. Many of you know. Um, one of our beautiful sisters in Christ uh, went home to be with Jesus on Friday morning. Her name was Patricia, Patricia Watson. And um, as I sat with her husband yesterday, I was hearing all kinds of wonderful stories that I didn't even know about her life. And they were beautiful. And it got me to thinking about um, all the things I don't know about all you guys. And you don't know about me. And how much time we've actually even taken to, to find that stuff out. But as a pastor, when, when tragedies happen, I really wish there was like a little pamphlet to go, well, let me tell you why this happened. It says here, you know, I don't have a lot of answers to the why questions because there's a mystery to God that he doesn't reveal to us. And I actually believe if God came down and told us let me tell you why this specific thing happened. We still wouldn't accept it. Because God's wisdom is just foolishness to us in many ways. We're like, oh, that doesn't work with my desires. But the one thing that I can tell all of us as we experience tragedy and experience pain is that I know where wisdom comes from. I know the glory of God and the bigness of God and the power of God and the greatness of God and the peace that comes from God. And Philippians 4 says that peace comes through prayer. It comes through prayer. So in one sense, guess what? You are to actively love Lash, her husband. He is a brother. And this is our first maybe opportunity 
to actually act like a family in a way that makes real practical, loving sense. But the best thing you can do is not, yes, do some practical things and love and invite over for dinner and and bring the love into that home. But the best thing we can do is pray for one another and pray that we'll be filled and that Lash will be filled and that our friends will be filled and the family will be filled with the wisdom of Christ. Because it is in the cross that we hope. It is in the cross that we live. It's in the cross that we find forgiveness and peace. That's what we rest on. Not this place. This is just a speed bump to eternity. We rest in God's wisdom. And we don't get God's wisdom from this world. Let's pray. Father God, we give you and ascribe to you the honor and the glory that is due your name as creator of all things. Father, we submit to your will. And I know that your desire is for us to submit through prayer. Help us, Father. Help our unbelief. Help our desires to be transformed. Change us that we might be a people of prayer that ultimately we may not depend upon ourselves to figure things out. We may not depend to feel good in and of ourselves, but to find pleasure and to find peace in Your wisdom. I pray You will speak to us. You will speak directly to our hearts as we get on our knees and we beg, Father, for You to speak to us. And then fill us with Your wisdom. Fill us with the knowledge of Jesus on the cross that brings forgiveness and that brings hope after death. Father, we look forward to seeing Your Son come again. We pray that He comes quickly. But until that time, I ask that You will transform us from talkers to prayers. To people who actively seek Your face in the teeny little decisions and the major disruptions of life. To the glory of your Son. Amen.